Hey, podcast family. Did you know that on May 2nd and 3rd, 2024, our 3D Growth Summit is happening in Nashville, Tennessee? But in-person tickets are already sold out with nearly 400 attendees. But you don't have to miss out. You can get exclusive access to our live stream and post-event recordings for just $395. Yes, you heard that right. For a single fee, you and your entire dental team can learn from our industry leaders with online recordings available after the event. So secure your spot now before it's too late by visiting www.3d-dentist.com slash 3D Summit or give us a call at 855-332-2285 and get your tickets for the live stream and event recording today. Now, let's get to this week's episode. The Dentalpreneur Podcast. Okay, doctor, it's time to put down that handpiece. You're listening to the show dedicated to helping dentists get their lives back. It's time to decrease your stress, increase your profitability, and regain your passion. Now introducing your host, Dr. Mark Costas. This episode is being sponsored by the Dental Success Summit International 2016. This event, which is being hosted by my company, the Dental Success Institute, is being held on June 3rd in Auckland, New Zealand, and June 10th in Sydney, Australia. As always, our goal is to deliver the no-nonsense formula for creating a systems-driven dental practice that will dramatically increase your income, efficiency, and time away from the dental chair. So we just recently finished our Dental Success Summit in the United States, and that was in Scottsdale, Arizona, and it was completely sold out. So if you live in Australia or New Zealand and would like to come visit uh, and see what we have to offer at our Success Summit International, just visit successsummitnzau.com. That's successsummitnzau.com for more details. Or you can go to our main website, truedentalsuccess.com. That's true. Dentalsuccess.com. And click on the events page and you can find out more about this awesome, awesome event. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Dentalpreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Costas. Hope everybody is doing great out there today. Today, I am super excited and honored to be interviewing a very influential dentist who I've been following for many years, and I just finally got to have a one-on-one chat with him after admiring him for many years. His name is Dr. Tarun Agarwal, and uh, he is a sought-after speaker, author, and influencer in the dental profession. He's a full-time practicing dentist and owns a successful general dental practice where he focuses on clinical excellence and customer service. Tarun is dedicated to continuing education and offers CE workshops at his own facility in Raleigh, North Carolina, and around the world. He is the host of the popular new podcast called T-Bone Speaks. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Tarun Agarwal. How are you doing today, Tarun? I'm good, Mark. I, I, it's been a long time since I've had anybody tell me they desire me. I mean, I just, <laughs> you made me a little excited here. <laughs> well, it's true, man. I've heard, you know, obviously most people. I mean, it's, it's, I've, been married, I've been married 15 years. It's been a while. <laughs> I've been married uh, 15 years this year, too. That's pretty, pretty interesting. So uh, you first came on my radar because of Dental Town, and you're a, you're a big, um, I guess, 
geez, supporter of Dental Town. You've been a technology kind of outspoken technology person for a long, long time on the forefront and leading edge of that. That's kind of what you're teaching now. Is that correct? Yeah, you know, um, really, it's um, I've always been a technology nerd. Well, I'm probably not a nerd. I've been a technology a geek, I would say, uh, since since high school uh, when I got my first computer in ninth grade. And um, I, I just fell in love. And I'm not one of those dorks that like, I wish I was one of those dorks that computer programmed. I'd probably be worth a lot of money by now. But um, <laughs> I, I just find that technology, you know, I find that technology makes life easier. It um, allows you to be better than you really are. And it allows you to really um, continue to grow. So I've always used technology to overcome some of the deficiencies that I personally have or that my practice has. So um, it, it's a staple of our staple of uh, my life, essentially. Well, that's cool. And it's a big part of your practice too, right? I mean, um, tell, tell us about oh, the Oh, yeah, te- absolutely. We have, te- we have everything. Yeah, tell us about the technology that you kind of rely on on a day-to-day basis. Well, I would always, I always, uh, when people ask me about technology, I, I, I always start with my number one, and that's uh, the least expensive technology I have in the practice, and that's my digital camera. Mm-hmm. Um, without, without it, it is the absolute most important piece of the puzzle uh, in any practice that wants to succeed. Uh, whether succeed is uh, allow your team members to do more for you, whether succeed is allow people to accept more traditional dental care or whether succeed is allow yourself to transition to more more quote-unquote sexy type of dental care mm-hmm. i think photography really makes it easy it allows your patients to see exactly what's going on it allows you to give your patients choices and for them to own their condition uh, so photography is by far the most important thing that we use uh, i would say second for me is our uh, combing our cct our ability to take 3D imaging and what it's done for our diagnostic capabilities and our communication capabilities is um, uh, beyond what I expected it to be. It, it was an unbelievable, difficult decision to sign on the dotted line for something that expensive, uh, but it has been an absolute no-brainer for us. Uh, I would say number three is our CAD CAM machine. We use CEREC in our practice, and uh, CEREC to me is the most patient-centric uh, technology that we have. I think a lot of people often say that, well, my patients don't care for single-visit dentistry, and I always say to them, you probably haven't asked your patients if they prefer to come once or twice, mm-hmm. uh, and you'd be quite shocked at how many people prefer to come once. Um, I also, we have a, so we just recently uh, bought another soft tissue laser. Uh, we bought the AMD laser, and uh, we're using it for gingivectomies and uh, soon for anectomies and some basic soft tissue procedures there. Uh, I'm a microscope user, so I do uh, a good percentage of my dentistry through a microscope, not just endodontics, uh, but also restorative work. And sometimes, unfortunately, when I'm fishing out uh, broken roots, uh, sometimes I'll use it for extractions as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we use the microscope in, uh, in terms of our teaching as well to allow people to see what it is that we're doing. And then certainly with digital x-rays, with digital patient charts, where, you know, all those things. I mean, but... Uh, those are the those are the major pieces of technology that we use in the practice. So, can we talk about CDCT for a while? Because I that that is the bit of technology. Yeah, it's your show. I'll do whatever you want. <laughs> tell me, tell me about the learning curve because I know you, you you have a what's your other company called? It's called the 3D Dentists. 3D Dentists. 
3D dentists, yes. Yeah, so when you get a group of people there that are, are um, technology novices, and that's a euphemism I'm using for myself because I'm just literally a moron when it comes to technology. So when you get a group of people like me that shows up and they need to learn more about um, reading uh, a scan and how, how, to, how to actually use that in practical ways in their practice, where do you start? How long does it take? What's the learning curve? How do you get it to the practical use? All that good stuff. Oh, sure. So, uh, you know, I think ultimately the, the first and most important step that I ask anybody to do is define what they expect out of their technology. Mm-hmm. And if you're looking for something that does it for you, you probably have bought the wrong thing uh, or looking for the wrong thing because it doesn't exist. Uh, and, and I find that most people, their biggest mistake is that they're trying to do something too fancy. Uh, they think it's going to take their crown and, crown and filling practice to something that it's not ready to go to. Um, so I try to get people to really focus on what I call the 80%. Let's talk about the 80%, not the 20% and not those silly little things that happen on occasion. You know, the, there's no way to predict those things, but what becomes predictable is the 80%. Uh, so my number one goal is to help people make uh, single unit implant dentistry unbelievably efficient. Uh, when I say unbelievably efficient, I'm talking in the two to three visit ballpark from start to finish, having your patient restored um, and and making it uh, clinically exceptional, mm-hmm. not just good, but exceptional, and then making it uh, efficient for your patients and then profitable for your practice. So so to me, those are the biggest things. I, I think learning curve on these things is, is not, I think the learning curve is more mental than anything else. Uh, it's learning to manipulate, see in 3D, uh, learning to recognize uh, how to virtually plan implants. And, and really, it's more about practice more than anything else. Um, just spending some time, you know, too many people, they come in, uh, they buy the CBCT machine and I ask them how many scans they're taking and, and they don't, I, I, you know, they don't say every patient and I'm like, well, you need to be scanning quote unquote every patient and every patient means 85% of your patients. You know, I ask them how many implants they're planning and they say, well, I haven't got patients to say yes. I go, well, that's too late to start planning once they say yes. I said, you need to plan more patients. In fact, I like to plan, pa- I like to plan implants on patients that don't need implants because it's a good way to showcase your technology to those patients who may talk to other people who may have a uh, brother, sister, husband, wife, uh, grandmother, mother that may want implants. And too often we're not focused on the subliminal side of marketing with this technology. So, um, you know, th- those are the kind of the main areas of focus that we put attention to. And then the integration of integrating it with your CAD CAM system, CERC in our case, uh, to be able to mill your surgical guides in office, to be able to take your impressions for your implants, and to be able to actually restore your implants in the practice, uh, whether it's a final restoration or a provisional restoration uh, it's it's pretty amazing in terms of what we can do and where we can try to dumb it down or simplify it for people to make it, uh, you know, reasonable bite-sized chunks of what they can actually implement in their practice. So what percentage would you say in your practice are you using stents versus non-stents uh, for implant placement? Uh, I would I would say the answer to that is 95, 98% I'm using a stent. Wow, really? Okay. Okay. So uh, let me ask you this. Let me turn around. What would be the reason not to use a stent? I don't know. You know, I've gotten mixed. Uh, li- listen, I, I am not the person to be asking about this because. No, no, but I'm just, I mean, logically, as, 
as a business perspective, what would be the reason not to use a stent? It costs money. That's the number one reason people give me for not using a stent. And, and you know, my answer to them, it costs 60 bucks to make one. Right, right. I mean, why would you not want absolute precision for 60 bucks? And, and I can tell you that by having absolute precision, it actually saves you money because now you don't need a custom abutment. You can do a screw retained restoration. You can put your implant to give you path of draw. You can put your implant to properly support the tissues. I think it's 60 bucks, unbelievably well spent uh, to produce a surgical guide. Sure. 60 bucks. If you, if you own the technology to, to create that, right, right, right. right obviously. Yeah. But, but once uh, you, but once you buy the technology, the cost of owning it, cost of using it is, is, it's essentially nothing. So when I buy, when you buy a cone beam machine, your cost of taking a scan is nothing right? because you're paying for that machine, whether you use it or don't use it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I I think a big part of this is implementation, right? I mean, you have all the toys, all the bells and whistles, and I, I consult with a lot of people that buy and get involved with a lot of this stuff and they, they underutilize it. it. It never ends up returning their investment because they just don't dig their heels in it and, and, you know, force themselves to use it on a daily basis like you do. So I think that's the big problem with these expenditures. If you can justify ROI and you have a, a, a solid plan in place to utilize the equipment and the, the technology that you purchase, I think, I think I'm all for it. Uh, but I've just seen so many times when people um, make these huge expenditures and then they don't end up actually, you know, it, it, it's just a, a really expensive, you know, towel rack. Um, and another gadget. No, no, you're, no, you're absolutely correct. No, you're absolutely correct. Uh, you know, it's um, it is unfortunate uh, that sometimes you know, you know. Here, look, here's the answer. Here's the saying I like to use: uh, Technology is right for every practice. Not every practice is right or ready for technology. Mm. And a lot of it is um, you have to be mentally prepared. You, as the owner, the purchaser of the technology. You have to get your team prepared because you cannot do it without them. And the biggest pitfall I see, and, and I don't say this because I'm an educator, but the biggest pitfall I see is people buy the technology and they have no plan of learning how to use it. And you cannot learn how to use this in your data in your while you're practicing. I mean, it's just it's unbelievably too hard to learn this while you're practicing. You've got to set aside the time. You've got to have forced practice. You've got to have lunch and learns. You've got to have time after work. Mm-hmm. You've got to have times on your days, quote-unquote, days off to do this. You, you simply cannot do it while you're practicing. It, it just doesn't make sense to, to try to go through the learning curve that way. Right. It seems like for some people, they're unrealistic about the amount of time that it's actually going to take to master this and, and to really put it into use, to everyday use like you have. Um, but thank goodness yeah. there are people like you well, that are teaching general dentists like me how, how to how to you know practically use this stuff. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, podcast family. T Bone here to talk about the 3D Dentist Digital Implant Continuum. Are you ready to start placing dental implants but feeling a bit hesitant and or overwhelmed? I know that feeling. I've been there. Let's change that together. Imagine not just learning about dental implants in a classroom, but actually performing surgeries on real patients right here in North Carolina, guided every step of the way by our expert 3D mentors. This is dental implant learning at its best, using techniques that are safe, predictable, and confidence-boosting. They're exactly what I use in my own practice, so you know they work. Our course goes beyond clinical skills. 
We prepare you to successfully integrate high-demand implant services into your practice, transforming your career by attracting new patients and elevating your practice. And it doesn't end with the course. Completing our program is just the beginning of a new journey. You'll be a part of a community of confident, skilled dentists with ongoing support to ensure lasting success and growth. After all, this is about mastering a skill that can transform your career, just like it did for me. So, are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Visit www.3d-dentist.com, check out our upcoming sessions, and join us to revolutionize your practice. 3D Dentist is truly committed to helping dentists take control of their practice, finances, and future. Now let's get back to this week's episode. Well, and you know, the other challenge people face is they're trying to do too much all at once. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, look, I've had cone beam for eight years, so I guess you can say I'm, I'm mastering it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, w- I use the word ing at the end of that mastering because it keeps growing and changing in the sense of what it, what the capabilities are. So even I take education, even I take that time out of my life to continue to grow myself and, and too many people that take a class and they're, they're done. Uh, they don't ever take their team members. It's just, you know, it's hard for me to accept that people aren't successful with this and blame the technology. I, I think it's it's too much. It's internal what's going on, not necessarily the technology's fault. Yes, yes. I can I can totally understand that. I agree with what you're saying there. So I, I did this a little bit out of order. I jumped right into the technology. I'd love to just talk a little bit about your background. Um, in the pre-interview, you and I were kind of talking about, well, I was actually bringing up how many things, the more I hear about you, uh, the the more I realize how much you and I have in common. We're both from a family of Im- immigrants. We both have three kids. We're both educators and full-time dentists as well. So we, we've got a lot in common. The one thing that you have on me is that you started uh, your career as a 23-year-old dentist. I started my career as a 31-year-old dentist. I was the old guy. So I've actually been in practice less time than you, and I'm about five years older than you. So um, we're, we have a lot in common, but then that that's the, the big differentiator. You are an ace, and you got in. Uh, right away to dental school. So, tell me about tell me about your life um, from uh, from your perspective, uh, living with immigrant parents and the struggles that you have th- that you had, and and how that affected your entrepreneurial kind of and business kind of leanings uh, uh, from that perspective. Well, I think it it shaped everything that I do. I think when you um. I think when you grow up living in your business, and I think too often we joke, like, for example, when's the last time you went to a mom and pop Chinese restaurant and you didn't see the kid in there doing the homework at eight o'clock at night? Yeah. Um, you know, that was our family. Our, our living room was the lobby of our motel. You know, our, our, our bedroom was the first room in the motel. Um, we lived in our business. So when you live in your business, you get to see it and breathe it. I mean, you don't know any different. Uh, so I, I think part of that is a negative for me in my life right now is that I don't know any different. I don't know but constantly working, constantly thinking, constantly living and breathing my business. I mean, I, I don't know any different from that. Um, but th- those are, the I would say, the only negative. The positives are um, you learn a lot. You learn, you learn on-the-job training. Uh, you know, you learn that ultimately – the name of the game is revenue and expenses. Um, I, I always believe it's easier to increase revenue than de- decrease expenses. It's very hard to decrease expenses. Uh, you know, I um, you know, you learn side businesses. 
you know, one of the things, one of the challenges we had in our motel business was that we needed to advertise our motel. And the, you know, as a as a mom and pop motel, the one of our biggest sources of, of business was the um, highway traveler. So the best way to reach highway travelers, you know, newspaper ads and things like that don't help motels. And the internet didn't exist mm-hmm. in the early '80s. Mm-hmm. So uh, in the mid mid to late '80s, at least. So one of the best ways to, to advertise motels was to uh, use billboards. Uh, but billboards through proper companies cost a lot of money. So one of the ideas my dad and I had was, why don't we just have our own billboard? Um, so we would buy the we would buy the small piece of land or lease the piece of land. We would uh, erect our own billboard to sign, and then we would use uh, the bottom billboard for ourselves, and then release out or rent out the top billboard to another company, which essentially. Uh, by leasing out that one billboard, it paid for our billboard and paid for our land lease and the cost of erecting the billboard. And that turned into a business uh, when I was in high school of managing and doing the artwork and managing the uh, the billing and the collections for it. So you learned about AR and accounts receivables in high school about how, you know, who you select as clients and what their pr- ability to pay is and what their likelihood to pay is and how long, how big of a leash that you give them before you have to, you know, cut it off and cut your losses. Uh, so, so those things were important to me. And, and I used, you know, we use that today. And then in college, I, I needed extra money. My parents, uh, we didn't, I, I don't want to say we didn't have the means, but we didn't have extra, extra money. Uh, and, you know, my dad was pretty, um, he was pretty in the sense of uh, he was, uh, pretty tough on me in the sense that I had to live in a budget that whatever that budget was that we had to determine it. And, uh, and then I had to live in it. And I found that very difficult to live in that budget, uh, with all the things I wanted to do and the gambling habit I had in Kansas city, we had riverboats there. So I, I like to gamble a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, I, I needed extra money and, and I'm not a manual labor type of guy. Um, so what I did in, 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 high, in college was I started a small business that produced T-shirts and sweatshirts and party favors that I would sell at the fraternity and sorority parties. Mm-hmm. You know how you go to a party and you buy a $10 shirt that costs $2 to make. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, was me, that was me selling those $10 shirts. Um, wow. So I used that. And, and, and essentially all I, all I did there was I was a middleman. I, I, would, I procured the ability to have somebody produce them for me. And all I did was go and get the orders and then go and sell them. Um, so, so that was my business through uh, college and dental school to uh, support my uh, extracurricular activities. And then, uh, you know, growing up an entrepreneur in that sense, uh, I knew that I wanted to own my own practice. So um, pretty much six months out of school, I started my practice and uh, we've kind of gone from there. And uh, I had dreams or ideas of opening multiple practices uh, I just never got around to it. Uh, I got caught up in education and uh, helping other people. And uh, you, I, I simply can't, I can't do what you're doing, Mark. I, I don't know how you do it, to be quite honest with you. Um, to own multiple practices, to build that business, and to do the education, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing to be able to do that. Uh, uh, I, just, I just couldn't imagine it. Well, thank you very much. It is pretty all consuming at this point. I forgot how much work it was. I did it yeah. one round and then I, I got rid of four of them and then kept two and then I'm doing it all over again. But, uh, I, I like to think that, um, that, that I'm smarter about delegating and outsourcing and, and my systems are a lot tighter than they used to be. So hopefully that'll float me through this next round of, of expansion. But, uh, 
but the jury's still out. We're, we're all going to have to wait and see. And, and the, the listeners here are, are taking the journey with me. I'm sharing, I'm sharing all of my struggles and, and challenges, warts and all. So um, I'll keep you posted on how the second round goes. You know, I, no, I, I mean, I'll, I'll, li- I'll listen in. You know, I listen sure. to your podcast every week. So. You know, I actually, um, it was interesting when, when, um, uh, when you when you asked me to come on, I was like, why, why in the world do I want to? Why would you want me to come on? I mean, all your all your guests seem to do rapid growth in such a short period of time, and um, my growth hasn't been nearly that rapid, um, not nearly that rapid. Um, but uh, it's 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 uh, to me as a competitive person, when I hear these other people doing it, I, I'm just like, what's wrong? I, you know, I think what's wrong with me that I can't do it. And, um, so it's, it's interesting. You know, it's funny that you bring that up because I was listening to your podcast the other day and, and you and Chuck were talking about how sometimes you can walk away from like, like from listening to some speaker or guru on stage or, um, uh, maybe one of your study, uh, you know, your, your, um, you know, your, your community study meetings and you can walk away feeling like crap about yourself. Cause a lot of times people inflate their, you know, their successes and minimize their, their challenges. Right. I, I get this all the time. You know, you, you talk to people and, and people puff out their chest and we're producing this and, and, uh, you know, you were talking about it in, in terms of, you know, clinical failures, you got to get clinical failures. You have to have post-op sensitivity and you're not including that in any of your presentations. Right. So, um, a lot of times you, you, well, you, you got to take what people say with a grain of salt for sure. You know, Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, podcast family. T-Bone here, bringing you our newest live patient implant training, Full Arch Express. For dentists already placing implants and ready to level up and continue building their implant practice, this is the golden ticket. We're diving deep into Full Arch Implants, the hottest game changer in implant dentistry. In this program, we tackle both overdentures and all-annex fixed hybrids, Mastering techniques that are essential for modern, comprehensive dental care. It's about getting your hands on the tools and techniques that will replace the doubt and fear with confidence and predictability. Here's the kicker. There's live patient training right here in North Carolina. You're not just learning theories. You're in the operatory doing real work on real patient from start to finish, guided one-on-one by our expert 3D mentors. You'll learn the nuances of each approach ensuring you can cater to a wide range of patients to maximize revenue. Speaking of revenue, with me, you know it's not just about the clinical skills. We're bringing business into this aspect too, teaching you how to integrate these advanced services profitably into your practice. So are you ready to rise up to the top in implant dentistry? Join us at the Full Arch Express. This isn't just another course, it's a career-defining leap. Head to www. 3d-dentist.com to enroll in our next session. 3D Dentist is truly committed to helping dentists take control of their practice, finances, and future. Now, back to this week's episode. Well, you know, I listen, when somebody tells me what they produce, uh, like I, I automatically dismiss it. I never tell people what I produce. I only tell people what I collect because I don't care what you produce production is irrelevant because in the world of PPOs, which is the world I live in, you know, my crown fee could be $2,000. It gets, it gets knocked down to six, seven, 800 bucks pretty quickly. So I can produce $20 million. If I want, I can just make (laughs) arbitrary outrageous fees. Right. Exactly. 
You know, it's so funny. It's, uh, I, it's, I, it's about collections. I love that you say that. And for me, I take it one step further. I don't even care what you collect because I have I have clients that collect, right. you know, $600,000 a year, but they have 32% overhead. So they're taking more money home than the $2 million practice down the road that's got 82% overhead. I see it all the time. Right. So, so yeah. So um, I'm glad you brought that up. And I this is a kind of a natural segue. I listened to part, I didn't get through all of it, but I listened to a part of your, um, I guess it was, you could call it a debate. It was a very friendly debate, but. Um, yeah, of course. You're, you're talking with Gary uh, Takish about, uh, you know, a PPO driven practice, which is what I own. I own only PPO uh, kind of centered practices versus a fee-for-service practice, which which is getting more and more rare. It's more and more like a unicorn every day is the fee-for-service practices. Sure, it sounds great, but the reality is the vast majority of us out there are going to be accepting and participating in insurance at some point in our career if, we're, if we already aren't. And I love your take on it. I love the fact that you admit that you accept PPOs and that you can be profitable with PPOs. So can you tell us a little bit more about your philosophy on, you know, PPOs? Cause I know that it wasn't, that wasn't always your philosophy. No, no. You know, my, my thing, I, I still, I still don't understand this. Uh, what, what is, what is our shame in, in being an insurance dentist? I, I don't understand why we're shameful of it and who makes us shameful of it. And, um, you know, listen, at the end of the day, dentistry is outrageously expensive, not over expensive, but it's a lot of money for the vast majority of the people. Uh, and if you, I believe if you live in a city of more than 15,000 people, uh, you're going to be an insurance driven practice. I mean, it's, it's almost impossible in today's world. Mm -hmm. Uh, and if you live in a, if you live in an area where people have jobs, you, <laughs> you're going to have to take insurance because people with jobs, who are the ones that can afford to spend money on dentistry have insurance and most of them want to utilize, like I have insurance. I want to utilize my insurance. Exactly. You know, I'm an educated human being. I'm, I make good money, but I still want to utilize my insurance. Why would I pay for something and not use it? Absolutely. So um, I, I think in dentistry, we've got to get over this whole, uh, like I'm, I'm not worthy or I'm, I'm, it's, uh, you know, I'm lowly if I take insurance because unfortunately it is, uh, you know, it's kind of part of our, it's kind of part of our profession. And so, you know, I tried to start my practice uh, straight out of school, essentially six months out of school. I was cash only, uh, you know, being from an Indian family, nobody gave us, uh, like gifts for a wedding. They just gave us cash. Mm -hmm. Um, that that was our gift. So I had like 40,000 or $45,000 that we got from my wedding. And that was my cat. That was my capital to, uh, to run my practice. And, Somehow I made it an entire uh, year, year and a half uh, without losing more than forty grand total. I didn't make any money. I just didn't lose more than forty thousand dollars, and uh, I, I, I just couldn't make it work. Whether it was because of my age, whether it was because of the youthfulness of my practice, or whether because I just didn't know what I was doing, um, I, I couldn't make it work. And I, I remember uh, sitting down with Howard Friend of Dentaltown, and and he said, "There's no shame in taking insurance." and and he, he was right. I mean, I, I've allowed insurance to be a marketing vehicle for our practice. I've allowed insurance to represent 60 to 70 percent of our practice. It is the common core and base of our practice that brings patients in, uh, drives our hygiene department, which drives our restorative department, 
uh, which drives my the ability to create a business versus having a practice. And I'd love for us to talk about having a business versus a practice. I don't think dentists understand that enough. I don't think dentists pay themselves correctly. I would love for us to talk about that as well. Um, but it, it creates that 70% of my practice that's stable. And what, what that allows me to do is allows me to know that every month, I'm, as long as I don't do anything stupid or crazy, we're going to have that insurance portion of our practice that pays the bills, pays me a modest salary, and uh, allows me to live a life. And then that gives me freedom to really take risk and chances with the rest of my practice. And, and that's really where we've grown and thrived is taking that insurance base and converting them to dental implants, to orthodontics, to sleep apnea appliances, utilizing medical billing. Uh, to expand our revenue. And, you know, my thing is we've doubled our practice. Uh, it, it hasn't taken me 18 months like many of your your interviewees. It's taken me about five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in five years, we've doubled our practice, and I have worked less along the way, and I have not, I have not grown the active number of patients in our practice. Our practice is stagnant in the sense of active patients. Certainly, we, we generate new patients and a decent number of new patients, but we also lose. I don't think dentists understand how many patients they lose going out the back door. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in terms of where I plan to go with insurance, um, for me, insurance will become you know, I will take myself out of uh, some of some of the insurance plans. I will keep our practice and our associate partner um, in the plans, uh, but I will take myself out of some of those plans so that I can charge a more what I consider reasonable fee for what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, because listen, if you go to a lawyer, you're going to pay more for the lawyer with gray hair than you're going to pay for the lawyer with lots of hair. You know, mm-hmm. um, because of the time and experience. But in dentistry. I get paid the same as my associate dentist in terms of for the procedures I do. So they've commoditized our business, and I'm not saying that's good or bad, but it's a fact of life. Whether we can argue all day about how good it is or how bad it is, but it's a fact. So ultimately, we just need to move on from it and, and make the best of it. So I'll take myself out of uh, out of the plans, but that'll be a slow progress for me. And the other thing that I don't understand is whoever said that just because we participate with the plan that we have to wait on insurance reimbursement. Why can't our patient pay us up front or make financial arrangements up front for the entire amount? And then when the insurance dollars come in, that just gets deducted out of the amount they owe us. So that way we're not trying to send statements and not trying to figure out what insurance pays. I just don't understand some of our business uh, business philosophy. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the saying I like to use uh, myself is we're practicing 2016 dentistry in a 1980s business environment. Oh, and it's a, honestly, it's a recipe so for true. disaster. Isn't that so true? It is so true. And the climate has changed. I mean, there, there's nothing resembling the climate from from the 1980s as far as dentistry is concerned. And you're right. Not, the, not clinically – not business, right. not marketing, not human beings, not the practice. Nothing looks the same. Oh, but so yet true. we still follow the same philosophy of 1980. I mean, it's, it's, it's deafening to me. It's just I just want to pull what little hair I have left out <laughs> just when I talk to people about this. So when was it? What, what, when did you evolve? Because um, I remember hearing that you at one point were a fee-for-service practice. And then was it when you spoke to Howard and, and he basically gave you permission and said, hey, man, there's no shame in this. We'll accept insurance. Is that when it happened? When did it happen? Yeah, I mean, that's when I, – well, it was, it was – uh, so 2001, I started my practice. Mm-hmm. 2003, I ran out of capital. 
and it was either go bankrupt or I, mean, I had two choices. I could go bankrupt. I could beg, borrow, and steal money from the family, um, which I, which I don't want to do that. I mean, not that they have lots of money to give me, but they would certainly support me in my dreams a little bit. Uh, but ultimately, you know, it was out of force. And also, I needed that. I need that permission that it was okay to take insurance. And I respect Howard tremendously, mm-hmm. and I see the success that he's created for his practice. Uh, and he says, "Listen, we're an insurance-based practice, and we do unbelievably well." So, because I, all I had heard, and even to a certain degree, all I hear now sometimes is, you know, you need to work towards being insurance independent. And and nobody can define insurance independent. You know, to me, insurance dependent independent means that I make clinical decisions without the, without the confluence of insurance. Mm-hmm. Now, my patients may choose to use insurance as a method of payment. They may choose to adjust my fees for it, but I make clinical decisions and business decisions beyond dental insurance. So, so it was about 2003 that we started taking insurance and we, we haven't looked back since. And, uh, it's it scares me to drop any plans. I mean, we take about seven different plans right now. We don't take any government plans. We don't take any capitation HMO type plans, mm-hmm. uh, but we take tra- traditional commercial PPO insurance. And um, MetLife is the worst. Mm-hmm. Um, they have the, the unbelievably worst fees. I don't know what it's like in your area, but they're absolutely horrible. Yeah, we have some. Um, that's that's the and, bottom that we you know, that, a, we a, use that we use that as our kind of standard to not go below. It, when we're, right. when we're and, analyzing and plans. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's the bottom. That's, that's a pretty low standard, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. So can you, can you kind of allude to that uh, business versus practice mentality that you, that you spoke about? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I've always wanted to be in business. Okay. I'm a, a compassionate healthcare provider. I want to do good for the world. And it wasn't until I found professional success that I was able to chase those dreams of mine. And that dream is to open my clinic and open my office and do dentistry for free on, on the less fortunate. Uh, I have a heart for Hispanics and Spanish people. So I want to do dentistry for, for those less fortunate in the Hispanic population. I have a a real big heart for a teacher. My mom was a teacher and they make no money. Mm -hmm. Uh, they're grossly underpaid. Mm -hmm. And so I want to be able to open my practice and do dentistry for those, those teachers that simply can't afford the dentistry that they need. Uh, so I couldn't do those things until I found success. And um, so, you know, that, that kind of dro- drove a lot of those decisions. And um, for me, when I say business versus a practice, um, the vast majority, I would say 90%, maybe even 95% of dentists, they own a practice. They don't own a business. And when I say they own a practice, what I mean by that is if you're a solo dentist where that if you leave your office, the place shuts down, you have a practice. Now, you have a business when if you can leave your practice and the practice continues to run. Now, I'm not saying that your practice has to make money while you're gone. It yeah. simply has to not lose money right, right. while you're gone. <laughs> exactly. So, so to me, I found unbelievable freedom when we made that transition from being a practice, a solo practice, to becoming a dental business. And it affords me flexibility to take more time off. It affords me flexibility to offset my overhead through through revenue while while I'm not open. Like if you think about it, how what percentage of practices are open Fridays? Uh, and, and that's a normal day of the week. I mean, people want to work Friday. I mean, people want to get dentistry done on Fridays. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then what percentage of practice are open on Saturdays? I haven't opened Saturdays yet. I would like to. Um, but you know, to me, those are the things that create business. I mean, you have a, it's like having a grocery store. Why, if you're a grocery store, why would you not be open 24 hours a day? Because they're open 24 hours a day. They're restocking at night. What would it cost a grocery store to be open at, at nighttime to customers? It's a cashier and maybe a security guard. Mm-hmm. So you have all this real estate, all this equipment, all this technology, uh, that you simply let most practices work four days a week. They're simply the 40% of the time is just not being used. I mean, that's, that's silly. Um, so to me though, that's the difference in a business and a practice. Right. Right. And you take that a step I feel further. Like rambling. No, no, not at all. You take that a step further and you use your facility as a teaching facility as well. When, when the practice is closed, I'm assuming. Um, and that's kind of what I teach. No, 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 no not the practice is closed. <laughs> yeah. What, what's that? Not when the practice is closed. We try to we try to keep the place running, man. I try to keep the place running. Oh, seriously? Okay, so you're you're teaching people while the the place is is still running. Yeah, you know, no, no. It, I hit my sweet spot probably um, January of this year. I didn't realize it until my wife my wife told me. I said um, my practice was open. Mm-hmm. I was out speaking. My wife's practice was open, and my training center had a training going on. So we had we had everything we had everything running, no, all no, at one no. time, and and that to me that's that. See, to me, I, I don't think dentists think enough about their after income. Mm. You know, we can talk about how many dentists can't afford to retire, blah blah blah. You know, that's all a that's all a mentality of how much you spend, but uh, not enough people think about. <coughs> excuse me, not enough people think about passive income. Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 your practice can be a great source of passive income. If you if you create a business and not just a practice, um, you know you know a good practice should 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 net 15, ten to fifteen to twenty percent. Um, and I don't think dentists understand that. They say, well, that sounds like a high overhead, you know, and and they don't understand the numbers. I mean, to me, you you've got to pay yourself as an associate of your practice. You're an employee of your business. So you know, I pay myself thirty percent of what I collect just like I would pay my associate partner, just like I would pay anybody else. So that way I can truly understand what my business is making. And I, I, my goal is for my business to make 15% uh, on every dollar as a, for the, for the trouble and capital that we have to put into owning the business. And then I want to make money as a dentist working in the practice. So the more I work, the more I make, the less I work, the less I make as a dentist itself. And I, I, I would like to see dentistry move to a, again, nine, this is a 1980s versus 2016 business model. I, I would like to see dentists move towards saying overhead should be 80%, not 50, 55%. But that's just my personal philosophy on that. Today's episode is being brought to you by JetLab, home of the $77 Zirconia crown. If you're looking for an exceptional dental lab that's both affordable and reliable, visit jetlabservices.com. That's J-E-T labservices.com and order a starter kit. This is the lab that I personally use for all of my crown and bridge, and I couldn't be happier with their consistency and awesome customer service. So here you go and enjoy the episode. I love it. Okay, so let's break this down. So if you're saying you want overhead to be 80%, most most dentists, because of what we're used to hearing, would say, "Oh my God, you're you're running the place um, 
extremely inefficiently, but I, I understand what you're trying to say. You're going to say, if the typical associate, say, makes 30% and your expenses minus the doctor pay is, say, 50%, then your overhead is 80%, and the owner, whether or not he is the provider in the practice, is taking 20%. So a million-dollar practice that's netting uh, – I'm sorry, that is grossing a million dollars with 80% overhead, the doctor – the owner of the practice, whether or not he's practicing in there, is going to make at least $200,000 with an 80% overhead. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, and I don't know if 20% is legitimate for everybody, but that should be our goal, right? I think anywhere between 12 and 20% should be the number that we should shoot for. Because, you know, at the end of the day, why why would you take it? So, okay. So here's what I tell people. I can go make 30% anywhere. Okay. I can make 30% as an associate in my practice, and any practice. I mean, pretty much in our area, that's the going rate for associate. Why would I run a business that has, in the traditional model, 70% overhead so that I could pay myself 30%? Why, why would I even have that headache of owning a practice? I, mean, I, I should just go work for somebody else. So I should get some return for that risk and that entrepreneurship of owning my practice. And, and too many dentists simply don't look at it that way. Oh, you got the risk, you got the liability, you got the the overhead. I mean, you got there's so many reasons to just go be an associate if you're not going to run any any tighter than say 50% overhead plus, you know, the the cost of the providers. So, um yes, I I anything, you know, anything 10 to 15% I think is great uh in profit. But uh, you've got to make that uh, they say, I think it's um, I was I was just looking at the uh, the ADA survey for 2015, and it said it was kind of hard to to uh, decipher what they were saying the over the average overhead was, but it's between 68 and 72 percent. So that means that uh, you the typical dentist say is say their overhead 68 percent. That means that you're only getting 2% profit if you pay yourself like an associate. So all of that work that you're doing, all of the liability, all of all of the stress, all of the risk that you're taking to be a practice owner for 2%, and if, if your overhead 72%, then you're actually only paying yourself 28%. You might as well go work as an associate somewhere. No, absolutely. You might as well go. It's, it's stupid. I mean, honestly, you know, I just call it like it is. It's absolutely stupid to run a practice in the traditional model that has 70% overhead. Yeah. I mean, it's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I mean, it's, it's, it's dumb. It I, makes no sense whatsoever. I get to, I get, I have the privilege of being able to look behind the curtain of dental practices every single day. I'm, I'm doing, you know, analyses all the time and, uh, you'd be surprised. I mean, the majority of the practices I see are over 70% overhead. It's crazy. Um, and, and, uh, and that's okay if you have a plan and you're in a growth phase. As we were talking about earlier, the growth phase actually means you make less money. <laughs> but you know, It's okay if you're in the growth phase and you're running 70% overhead and you understand that. In other words, right. startups don't make money, right? So, so that's okay. But you can't be doing that 15, 20 years into your career if you're in a stagnant phase. You know, you really should be – I think we should shoot for let, – let as you're correct, 50% overhead plus compensation for your, your doctors or what I like to say is 80% overhead. And, and, and how, do, how do doctors pay themselves? I mean, how do you determine that you're going to pay yourself $10,000, $15,000, $20,000, $30,000 a month as some random number? How can you live a life or how can you budget your personal life if, if you have no idea how much you're going to make? I mean, you have to budget your life based on what you produce or collect. 
And so you should your number every month should should vary based on how well your practice does or does or doesn't do. Uh, you can't pay yourself the same amount every month. It, it's just not good business. Sure, sure. So um, as long as we're talking about business, a big part of business is debt. And with technology, many times comes a lot of debt. So how do you handle paying back debt once you, say, purchase a big piece of technology? Do you stretch it out as long as you can, or do you pay it off as aggressively as possible? I'm just asking for your philosophy. I'm, I'm not looking for the right answer sure, sure. here. Yeah. No, no. And, I, and I look, I'm an open book. I'll tell everybody everything, anything. So he, here's what I believe. I believe, and, and look, I'm, I listen, I'm a, a trainer for Serona and a speaker for Patterson. That they, I'm clinically biased. I'm not financially biased whatsoever. Um, one of the things I like about, uh, well, maybe it's just me. I just say what I want anyway, regardless <laughs> of who's paying me. So, um, so, so here's what I tell anybody. If you have to buy a piece of technology and the only way you can afford it is by extending payments to seven to 10 years, don't do it. Okay. You have got to use a traditional, in my opinion, you have to base your, uh, your ability to purchase on a traditional, uh, uh, term. Uh, and the traditional term for technology is five years. So if you can't make the five-year number work, you do not, in my opinion, do not buy it by extending it to seven years or 10 years. It's okay to take a three, four-month skip to get yourself going. I'm not totally against that, but I'm absolutely against extended, um, I, I'm absolutely against extended terms uh, because too many of us, we, oftentimes we take extended terms saying the interest rates are low and then we never pay it back fast. Um, and, and to me that that's, that's, uh, the te listen, technology today, anything you buy five to seven years from now will be obsolete. Depreciating. So you cannot Depreciating buy something. Asset. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, it's not even, even listen, we all take the depreciation with, uh, with section 179. We take the depreciation all at once, but, but it's, it's a depreciated asset. And also it's an obsoleting asset asset. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that stuff literally, literally goes out of date every five to seven years. Sure. And uh, so, so you, in my opinion, you can't extend it out seven to 10 years. That's, that's a uh, suicide uh, if you ask me. So I, I'm not, a, I don't, I don't have any problem with debt. Uh, my belief on debt is that you, it's good to take on debt. If it's the right debt, uh, it's good and safe to take on debt as long as you're paying yourself properly. And as long as you're paying yourself your freedom fund, I, what I call the freedom fund uh, and the, the formula I use in a growth phase is $1 freedom fund, $1 debt service. Uh, the formula I use at this stage of my life right now, uh, being beyond the growth phase, is $2 freedom fund, $1 debt service. Um, so uh, I, I don't take on debt that I'm not able to at least continue to plan for my afterlife. Uh, my, my ability to, to, I call it FU money, my ability to, to, to not have to go to work. You know? I love it. I love it. So we talked a little bit about uh, in the pre-interview about your plans to kind of scale back on the clinical stuff and maybe increase in the, yes. the speaking and coaching and consulting um, uh, realm next year. So can you tell us about, say, your 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 short-term goals as far as your three to five-year plans and then when you plan on hanging up the handpiece or, or have you decided that yet? You know, I hope not to hang up the handpiece, uh, quite honestly, Mark. I think... Um, I think you lose a perspective, um, you lose a respectability, and, and you lose, I think, the ability to relate to people if you stop working. And uh, so it's unbelievably important to me 
uh, to continue to work. Uh, you know, I like to look at everything a little bit differently. I like to look at what makes me like, if you ask most dentists, they're like, Oh my God, I can't wait to stop. Right. And, and what I want to do is I want to say, what makes you want to stop? And most people will tell you, well, I'm tired of doing fillings. You know, so my number one goal, my number one goal for 2017 is to stop doing fillings. And, and so that doesn't mean my practice stops doing fillings. That's one of the benefits of building a business is that I can have an associate partner that can do my fillings mm-hmm. and uh, do my, and, 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 you know, then part of later 2017, I want to stop doing single unit crowns. Um, and, and so to, to me, that's a multiple step plan to that one. I have to have the business. Uh, so I can have an associate partner that can take those things on because, you know, we have patients that have needs. We have people that we want to, that we want to take care of. They've been loyal to us over many years. So we don't want to leave them hanging in the wind. Uh, and two, you also have to have a, a process to be able to replace, uh, those things. Um, you know, one of the things I tell my team members on a side note is I say, you always have to replace yourself. I'd love to come back to that. How I tell my team members, they got three years to replace themselves. But, um, so I have to replace those fillings and those crowns with something else. Uh, so for me, that's going to be sleep apnea. That's going to be orthodontics. That's going to be implant dentistry, uh, because those are much higher ticket items in the motel business. We try to, we try to shoot for an average daily rate. And our goal is to have our average daily rate as high as possible. And my issue with fillings and crowns, and not that it's not a good business and not that it's not a noble uh, noble procedure to provide, is that it's a limiting procedure. I mean, you can only charge so much in the PPO environment, which represents 90% of practices, and you can only charge so much for a crown even. You know, as people say, well, you can take fillings to crowns. Okay, great. That'll raise your productivity from $300 an hour to $600 an hour which is great. The, what happens when you tap out at $600? You should never make any more. Your business should never do better than that. And you need to look to procedures that will allow you to get to that 1000 or $1,200 an hour. And to me, the answer isn't doing two crowns on two different patients. It's running two columns. To me, that's not the answer. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, to me, that's not the answer, right? Uh, to me, the answer is how can, how can I make myself happy in practicing? So, uh, so, so ultimately, 2017 is no more fillings. Uh, mid 2017 is I'm going to personally drop MetLife. Uh, we will continue to have MetLife in the practice, but I'll drop MetLife. Uh, end of 2017, I'm going to stop doing single unit crowns. And then, then I won't have a reason not to practice essentially. Right. I mean, I can get rid of the things that break my back that cause me to hurt the things that cause patients to come back in pain when I do a crown on them and they need, they do root canal or when I do a filling on them and I get a little too close to the nerve and they need a root canal doc. It didn't hurt till you touched it. Yeah. <laughs> Never heard that. <laughs> All those things that make us, you know, at the end of the day, you just need to ask what, what, what is it that you don't like about what you're doing that makes you not want to do it? And just, just figure out a solution to those things. There's no magic bullet, but it's, uh, most things are simple in life if you just look at it from that perspective. And, um, you know, I think the other, just I, you know, random, I'm like ADD, by the way, okay? Oh, so um, am I, so am I. Go ahead. I think too many people spend too much time on, cl- listen, I'm a clinical educator to a certain degree, but too many people spend too much time on clinical education. You know, my dad told me, you know, the greatest gift my parents gave me uh, when I graduated dental school, they gave me $10,000. Uh, and it came with a string and that string was, I could only use it on continuing education, uh, because they wanted me to be a specialist, but I, they didn't understand. I didn't have the grades to be a specialist and I didn't have the heart to tell them that. Uh, so they said, you need to go take education and this money is only for that. Um, too many people take too much clinical education and not enough people take 
what I call getting patients to say yes education. Mm. And and my dad told me, you know, when I said, oh, I want to take this class and learn how to do this procedure, he says, why don't you find a patient that's willing to say yes first and then go learn how to do this procedure? Yeah, like and, um, and and we're not spending enough time as, as individual practitioners learning how to get patients to say yes. Uh, instead, we're learning more and more clinical dentistry. And what I find is that as we learn more clinical dentistry, we only expand our clinical talk to our patients, which only makes it even worse to get them to say yes. The more clinical we talk to vast majority of our patients, the more bored they get with us. And the more they don't want to do anything, the more we confuse them. So I like to keep it simple. I try not to use fancy words with my patients. I not try I try not to speak more than 10, 10 words <laughs> at a time to them. <laughs> and and I try to ask them all what it is that you, what is what is it that you want to do? Um, you know, and, and it's amazing what patients will tell you tell you when you ask them what it is that they want to do. They'll, they, most of the time they'll say, well, well, what do you, what do you suggest? Which is total permission for you to suggest ideal treatment. <laughs> you know what? It's, it's unbelievable. That, that's, that's all you got to do is ask them what they want. And they'll say, well, you're the doctor. Great. Well, that's permission for me to tell them what it is that I would do, which is typically ideal treatment. So I, I don't intend to hang up the handpiece. Uh, I think it would be unfair to my, to my, my people I want to touch and feel and, and reach and and you know I love getting messages from people that say I've affected the life not egotistically but I, I just you know that's why we do, I mean that's why you do what you do Mark you you don't do it you don't do it uh, you don't do it just for the money you do it more uh, because there are many things that we can do that don't require as much work to make the money uh, you do it to help people and uh, and uh, you know we love hearing back from people that we help them because it drives us even more to to be even more different and and so so not 1980s i mean my goal is to take dentistry out of the 80s uh you know conceptually because too many of our speakers are from the 80s too many of our instructors are from the 80s too many of our gurus and mentors are from the 80s um and that dentistry just doesn't exist anymore that that type of dentistry that clinically that type of dentistry philosophically that type of business entrepreneurially doesn't exist anymore and it's a recipe for disaster i mean it, it really is that's why dso's are great, getting so much momentum mm -hmm. because we're continuing we're continuing to run businesses like it's 1980s and um and we're not hiring people you know if 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 every private practitioner were to try, try to move to a model of uh, even hell not every private if we can get 30 percent of the private practitioners to move to a model of being a business versus a practice we we would we would hire twenty five to thirty thousand associate dentists, you know, and and so and people go to DSOs, and I'm not against DSOs at all, by the way. Mm -hmm. I think they serve an unbelievable need, and I think overall they can be good for dentistry. Um, you know, people go to DSOs because they need a job; they get out of school, and and the private practice practitioners are not providing jobs for enough dentists. So, and these dentists that are graduating five, 6,000 of them a year need somewhere to go work. And, and a small percentage of them are going to go work for themselves right away. So, um, anyway, I ramble on about God knows what there. No, no, I love it. I love it. I love, um, the whole notion about giving up what you don't like about dentistry and outsourcing and delegating that within your own practice. So the practice still has the benefit of providing those services, but, uh, boy, what a great 
outlook on how to add longevity to your career. Just eliminate the stuff that you don't want to do. Treat it more like a business. Give it to, you know, your associate and, and people that need to, to be doing that sort of work at, at that stage of their career and uh, do the stuff that you love to do. Um, boy, that if you could focus on the stuff that you, the clinical stuff that you enjoy doing, you're right. You could practice dentistry forever. You'd never have to hang up the handpiece. It's a, it's a great, and, and, you know, great answer. And so much dentistry exists within our practices. I mean, I, it drives me nuts. And a lot of my good friends own marketing companies and things like that, but it drives me nuts um, where, where people think their solution to grow their practice is to externally market. And I, I don't think that's the solution. I think, I think most practices aren't equipped to properly handle phone calls. They're not properly equipped to have a schedule to bring, bring the influx from marketing in. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I believe if somebody calls, you got to see them within a week. If you're not seeing them within a week or even two or three days, you're wasting your marketing dollars. Sure. And uh, too many people aren't looking within their practice. Their back door is wide open. Uh, and they're focused only on the front door and they're not, they're not doing advanced services, things like sleep apnea. Sleep apnea is huge, absolutely huge, Mark. I mean, uh, and, and it's such an unbelievable service to provide. You, you know, there's as many sleep apnics as there are diabetics in the U.S. No, and, I have no um, idea. That's fascinating, really. And, then, and we believe that there are, well, the statistics show that one out of 15 adults have sleep apnea. And if I were to ask you how many adults you see in your practice each day, multiply that by how many days a week, uh, so days a year your practice is open, uh, th- that average number is going to be in the six, seven thousand dollar, six, seven thousand number. Uh, sorry, about six, seven hundred number. Uh, for most practices, somewhere between five and 800 patients have sleep apnea within their practice. Mm-hmm. If we could just focus on getting 10% case acceptance on sleep apnea, uh, that would be uh, out of 500. Let's use the low end number. If we got 10% case acceptance on the 500 sleep apneas that exist already in our practice, that would be 50 sleep appliances that we would do. And at an average rate of anywhere between two and $3,000, uh, the majority, 80, 80 to 90% of which is covered by medical insurance, you know, the average practice would add between $100,000 to $150,000 to the revenue. And you know, people say, well, I don't need $150,000. Number one, I know they're lying. But um, <laughs> you know, what, what I say to that is I don't care about the hundred fifty dollars necessarily. I say, how many MODs can I give up? For a hundred thousand dollars. Oh, great you know, way at your, of looking at, your, at things. Yeah, jeez. At, at your PPO fee schedule, I assume your PPO schedule is one hundred fifty bucks for a class two restoration. Yeah, it's about right? that. Yeah. Okay, so if I can add a hundred thousand dollars to my practice through some other ancillary service, that is literally like seven hundred. 700 class twos I don't have to do. So when people say to me, "How are you going to give up fillings?" I'm just that's there's there's the answer. I, you know, I'm going to do every implant I do in our practice an implant from start to finish is let's call it $3,3,500. So if I can do, and we know, we know that we, I know the math on this. There's one implant done for every 60 human beings uh, in, in the U S if the average practice is uh two, two, 3,000 uh, patients, we know that there's 15 implants uh, in, in every practice, if they have an average practice of 2,500 uh, patients, and we know many practices are much bigger than that. So if there's 15 implants in every practice, the average size practice, that's 15 times $3,000. Let's call that 50 grand. It's 45. Well, let's call it 50 grand. That's, that's another, uh, what, what is that? Another uh, 400, 350 fillings I can get rid of. <laughs> so, you know, so to me, we, you just have to ultimately, it's just perspective on which and how you look at things. And, and I choose my perspective right now is 
not to contract my practice, but to grow my practice uh, clinically. Um, and, and it's easier to do that within, you know, it's like orthodontics. If you could just get one or two patients to say yes per month to orthodontics, uh, you know, and Invisalign services like Invisalign make that easy services like six months mile or my friend Rick DePaul with power proc six month braces, you know, an average case fee of $4,000. If you can get one patient per month to say, yes, so that's another 50 grand in your practice. That's another 350 fillings you can get rid of. Mm. And, um, you, you know, so before you know it, by just, just looking within your practice, like, you know, how many of us have these uh, email programs like Revenue Well? That's one we're using, Smile Reminder, uh, 360 Lightning, and all these other, you know, Demand Force and all these programs. Mm -hmm. But how many of us ever actually use them other than to do recall appointments or to do patient confirmations? You know, have you ever sent out, and not you, I'm just saying your listeners, you sent out an email through your program that tells your patients that you do sleep apnea services. You'd be amazed at how many husbands or wives, mainly wives, will call your practice and say, can you help my husband who snores? He snores so bad, I don't sleep in the same room with him. Mm -hmm. and, and, and there's so much potential within our practices um, that we don't focus enough time on that. So do you guys, uh, as part of the educational stuff that you provide, um, helping with medical billing? Because I know that's a big gauntlet that a lot of people just get frustrated when yeah. they're trying to jump into sleep apnea that they can't figure out how to get the medical uh, insurance to pay for it. Yeah, so, um, you know, our, our curriculum has evolved over the last three years. When we first started, it was all cone beam and all CEREC. And uh, today, our, that represents a small part of what we do. Well, I shouldn't say small part. It represents a smaller part of what we do. Um, our main courses that we're focusing on right now are um, uh, essentially medical billing, sleep apnea, and then our implant curriculum. And, uh, you know, our goal is to help people. You know, ultimately, ultimately, what would you say the number one reason patients don't accept treatment? If you ask the general dentist, the number one reason patients don't accept treatment is typically going to be money, right? Yeah, time, money, so, and pain. Yeah, you know, time, fear, and money, right? And fear, it's easy to handle with sedation. Time, if they if they would just stop running on a on a treadmill, if they could just figure out how to make be more patient centric and get things down to less visits, uh, that would handle the time process problem. But the money problem is always going to be there, and certainly PPO dental PPOs help with that. Uh, that's one of the benefits of dental insurance. Uh, but we have a broader subject in medical insurance that really can help. So to give some examples to our to our listeners. Um, you know, I'll ask you a question, Mark. What is your best and worst uh, PPO insurance pay for a uh, new patient comprehensive exam so, in dentistry? Geez, that, well, the worst one that we accept is MetLife. Uh, geez, I, I don't even. So that know. one's like that one's like that one's like forty two bucks, thirty six to forty two dollars, and then your best one might be like fifty to fifty five dollars. Yeah. Okay. So. So, so what I will tell you is, uh, and with exams, uh, dental insurances have limitations, correct? Mm -hmm. You can only do two per year. And some of them even say you can only do one every six months, not even one every f five months and 30 days. It's one every six months. Mm -hmm. uh, what I can tell you is that you can go to medical insurance legally and ethically. And in, in the state of North Carolina, we're averaging somewhere between $140 and $180 for our new patient examination through medical insurance. And the benefit of that is it gives a better reimbursement, more, uh, it gives a reimbursement more in line with the value of our time and our expertise. Uh, also, it uh, when you take that $50 
for the exam, that's $50 you take away from the medical dental benefits, sorry, the mm -hmm. dental benefits that you use towards crew canals, crowns, and fillings that none of us like to do. Mm -hmm. So, so you're robbing from Peter to pay Paul. Sure. So we look to medical insurance on the side of exams to help us with that. Now you also, we had talked about how some people feel that cone beam isn't affordable. I can tell you that uh, about 15 to 25% of the time, we're getting our cone beam radiographs paid for through medical insurance. And, and, and again, I can only use North Carolina because that's where I'm at. Our average reimbursement in the state of North Carolina is somewhere in the $350 ballpark. So what I would tell you in my practice, which is a successful practice, not a big practice, not a small practice, but a traditional average practice, a little bit better than average. But... Um, that's just my ego talking, by the way. <laughs> so, um, you know, in our practice, we're averaging every month through medical insurance just for exams and x-rays. We're averaging somewhere in the $8,000 ballpark per month, wow. uh, which more than pays for my technology. And it's an absolutely underutilized aspect. Too many people try it and they try it on home, what I call home run cases. And they focus on the 20% when I want to focus on the 80%. And the 80% of what we do is kind of like when you negotiate fees with the insurance companies. Do you want to negotiate $20 on your crown or do you want to negotiate $3 on your exam? You know, the, the $3 on your exams will go farther than the 20 bucks on your crown because you're simply doing that many more exams than you are doing crowns. And uh, so medical insurance plays a big role from exams and uh, radiographs. And then it plays an absolute tremendous tremendously large role in the sleep apnea world. The sleep apnea is a medical condition. It has to be diagnosed by a medical doctor. And um, what we're finding uh, is our average reimbursement through medical insurance is in the $2,500 ballpark. And our average patient pays anywhere from zero to $500 out of pocket uh, for that appliance. Uh, so it makes a tremendous, tremendous difference in being able to get your patients into this much needed treatment and um, so it's, it's an important part of what we do. And now with technology playing a bigger role in sleep apnea, uh, we partner with Dr. Aaron Elliott out of Idaho. Uh, to um, And on the medical billing side, we partner with uh, Mr. Hutan Shahidi uh, to, to help us with the medical billing because I can't be an expert in anything, everything. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what I tell people, what I'm really good at, uh, humbly I say this at least, what I'm good at is making things digestible and easy for people to understand, simplifying it, and making it implementable in an everyday general practice. I'm not an expert medical biller. I'm not an expert sleep apnea person. I'm not even an expert implantologist. I've just found a way to make these what seems complex to most people. I find a way to, to break it down and, and make it much easier to implement. Uh, so on the sleep apnea side, we're, we're training people how to to practically implement Sleep apnea. We we don't we science is important. Uh, too many of these sleep apnea classes are all focused on. So they'll spend three quarters of a day talking about the science of sleep apnea, mm -hmm. and that's important. But that doesn't help you. That doesn't help you get started. That doesn't help your hygienist have a conversation. And for God's sakes, if you have a scientific conversation with your patients, they're probably going to run away scared. Mm -hmm. So. <laughs> So the simpler, simpler you can keep things, the better. Uh, so, you know, and then we have our implant curriculum. And there we're teaching people how to do single unit implants all the way up to fixed full arch implants. And I think that's another area where general dentists are missing the boat. You know, we, we know that a quarter of our uh, senior population will be without teeth. And uh, so there's a large market there of people that have disposable income that have desire to look youthful, that would actually like to eat and enjoy their food. Mm -hmm. um, so... 
we, we have a segment of the population that would like to get, um, you know, fixed teeth. And, and too many dentists say, well, I don't know how to do the surgery. And my saying is partner with a surgical specialist. If you don't know how to do the surgery yourself, partner with a surgical specialist and provide a package fee, uh, provide a package fee for your patients so that they can say yes and then, you know, have your patient write a check to your surgical specialist and have a patient write a check to you and allow your surgical specialist to place the implants, allow you to prosthetically drive that placement and then provide a restoration. So even if you're not surgically capable, uh, you should be able to restore these cases and add that service to your practice. So if you could add four or five, even let's say four fixed hybrids to your practice a year, you know, that's an additional $100,000 in revenue that you could add to your practice minus some costs. Let's call it an additional $50,000, $60,000 in revenue to your practice. And that's how you easily give up fillings and single unit crowns by replacing that production and collections with more quote unquote sexy procedures. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and too many people just, they're looking for these home runs, Mark. And I don't, I don't understand our, our, our need. Didn't we understand that Barry Bonds was on steroids when he was doing all this home run hitting? <laughs> so you can't, you can't just go out and look for home runs all the time. It's, it's not sustainable. It's not uh, you, you need to look, you need to look for, um, very logical procedures that make sense. But, um, wow. You know. Great stuff. So I'm, I'm really so grateful and thankful that you took the time. I know it, this is like the middle of the night for you. You and I had the hardest time connecting. It was ridiculous because you and I are uh, both full-time practicing dentists. So it's difficult to, to get two guys like us together um, at one time. We're, we're a time that works. But uh, can you, uh, before we let you go, I would love if you could give the audience the opportunity or the best way to get in touch with you and to sign up for your courses because I am definitely yeah. 100% going to be signing up for the uh, the medical yeah. billing uh, course. Well, we'd love to have you and whatever we can do to help you, let me know. Uh, you know, the best way to get in touch with me, honestly, is uh, for people to text T-Bone Speaks, T-B-O-N-E-S-P-E-A-K-S, T-Bone Speaks, to the telephone number 44222. And what it'll do is it'll ask you for your email address. And if you put your email address in, uh, it will then send you a handout for one of my lectures It'll send you certainly some propaganda on what we do, but most importantly, it'll put you in our email list, and then you'll get our podcast delivered to your email box. You know, some I'm doing an ask Ask T Bone segment in the pop in the podcast where people can submit clinical questions or even philosophical questions, and we'll do a, a short six to ten minute response to that, and that that's easier for me because I can do that sitting in the backyard. Uh, but I'm I'm actively on Facebook. Uh, my email address is Dr. A at 3D-dentist.com. Uh, you know, uh, it, it's, it should be relatively easy to get in touch with me. The worst way to get in touch with me is by phone. Uh, I don't do voicemail. I don't answer my phone. Uh, I'm, I'm a, a victim of the millennial generation. I'm not a millennial, but I'm a victim of that generation where all I like to do is text and email people. Um, so uh, I'm that's, the same that's exact honestly. Way. I'm the same exact way. Well, but you know, I can text and email people at two o'clock in the morning or three o'clock in the morning when I wake up thinking about something, or while I'm while you know while we're sitting at dinner. Not that that's a good thing to do. I, I, I hate admit. You know, you know the other thing I don't think people do enough of. Mark, I'm just going to ramble on. Yeah, sure. At some point, you're going to have to cut this off or, <laughs> or or edit it out. No, no. I don't think people. I don't think people take enough time off. Um, you know, I, I believe, I believe a dentist needs to take at least at least. 
a half a week, a long extended long weekend every six weeks. And what they'll find, I promise to, to our listeners, if you take an extended long weekend every six weeks, you will not see a drop in your production. It will be heartbreaking and unbelievably difficult at first, uh, but you will not see a drop in your production uh, three months later. So you're saying uh, like uh, you'll... take like a Friday, Monday? Yeah, I mean, I would even look at it like a Thursday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday off, or Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday off mm-hmm. uh, uh, to begin with, because I got to break people in slowly. <laughs> and then, yeah. I, then, I, then I want people to take uh, a week off every six to nine weeks, a full week off um, every six to nine weeks. And, and what I've done this year is, uh, for me personally, is and a lot of this, I'm not saying for everybody to do this. I just like to tell people what it is I'm trying. I may come back next year and tell you as a failure, but I'm trying to take one week off every month this year. And we've done that so far, January, February, March, April, uh, and May will be the first month that I'm not taking a full week off. We're taking a very long, extended, long weekend for Memorial Day. Um, but I'm trying to take a week off every month. And so far, I've been able to do that without seeing a drop in my personal production, uh, personal production slash collections, um, which is uh, part of, you know, which is which is important. And, and I think it's all fear that we don't take enough time off. Um, and, you know, one of the things that drives me is my kids are on this year-round school schedule. Mm-hmm. So every nine weeks, they get like two weeks off or three weeks off. So, so we try to plan a family, you know, when you're, when you're as busy as people like we are between running the practice, sorry, between being the practice, being the dentist in the practice, running the practice, running several businesses on the side. And we know, hell, I didn't even talk about our motel business that I'm in. Um, so, you know, um, our time with our kids is what suffers to a certain degree and and egotistically egotistically none of us like to admit that but that's the part of our life that suffers the most or first i should say and the most is our family life so for me the only way to really get that dedicated one-on-one time with my kids is to go on week-long vacations with them every six to nine weeks when they're tracked out of school and because once i leave town i for the most part can can really disconnect and, and really spend time with my family. And I think more dentists need to do that. I think it, it's, um, it's easier than we realize. It's 1980s mentality. To, I mean, listen, our president takes a vacation every other week, for God's sake. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's true, man. I, that's something I definitely have to work on. I need, I need more balance. I need to spend more time with my family. And I need to, to get over myself and realize that the world will go on if I don't go to work for a couple of days. But I am... Uh, I am a triple A personality and it's hard for me, but I will take that bit of advice and I'm going to try to do that. I am. I, yeah, I was, you know, at least take, at least take, at least take a long weekend. Yeah. Yeah. And I was telling you that, I mean, this is business related, but I was telling you, this is the longest, um, I'm doing the, 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 uh, the event in, uh, Auckland, New Zealand and, uh, Sydney, Australia, then going straight to Seattle. So I'm taking three weeks off in June. That's the longest I've ever taken off since I started my entire career, uh, well, away from the practice anyway, I'll be working. But, uh, so I'm having a bunch of, uh, anxiety over that, but, uh, I, th- there's a pretty good chance that the world's not going to come to an end. Um, no, I'm pretty sure it'll to, be here when you get back. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. So, uh, Hey man, great, great, great interview. Thank you so much for taking the time. I respect you a lot. I am going to come out and visit you in Raleigh, North Carolina. I promise you that. Uh, so thanks again, man. I really appreciate it. Uh, 
Uh, thank you, Mark. It was, it was my honor and pleasure to be on here. And I apologize. I can't be like most guests and double my practice every 12 to 18 months. But, you know, <laughs> hey, man. I, I, just, I just keep, pl- I keep plugging along. <laughs> You're doing great, great things for dentistry. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Tarun Argawal. And that wraps it up for another episode of the Dentalpreneur Podcast. I thank you so much for joining us this week, and we will talk to you next week. Take care now. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Dentalpreneur Podcast. Check out truedentalsuccess.com for full recaps of every show, a schedule of our live events, free video tutorials, and a whole host of practice-building resources. Hey, podcast family, T-Bone here. Are you a dentist looking to elevate your practice and profits? Then pay close attention. Introducing the 3D Business Mastermind, the dental business coaching program designed for dentists who want to see real results. I've walked the path of practice ownership for nearly 25 years. I know your challenges. I felt your pain. This is your opportunity to overcome the chaos, the busyness, and the financial frustrations of owning a dental practice. Imagine a dental practice where your appointment book is highly productive, doing the dentistry you enjoy, your team is self-motivated, and your profits keep climbing. That's what the 3D Business Mastermind is all about. In this exclusive mastermind, you'll join a league of ambitious dentists driven to elevate their practices. You'll gain access to proven strategies, personalized coaching, and a community that understands your journey. So if you're ready to supercharge your dental practice and enjoy the success you deserve, visit www.3d-dentists.com and take the first step towards a brighter future in dentistry by filling out the 3D Business Mastermind application. Now, let's get to this week's episode.